Hi, welcome to 10 CDs for a Penny, the show where we talk about mild music mags and culture and stuff. This episode we're talking about New York Times Magazine, September 2nd, 2007, with a cover story on Rick Rubin. The article entitled, Can Rick Rubin Save the Music Business? I think the biggest thing in this article that I took away was that Rick Rubin, when he took over Columbia Records, and that's why they're doing this interview with him, was to save the music industry, and his idea, or one of them, was to make a streaming platform, a subscription service, where it would go to multiple devices in your home, portably, and it would all have a catalog of music that you could access at any time. This was in 2007. This is a long way away from streaming platforms. We were still in the iTunes era. We were still sort of in the CD era, although not a lot of people were buying CDs. That's why Rick Rubin had this idea. I referenced this article a lot when anybody starts talking about streaming platforms and how I thought Rick Rubin had this idea to save the music industry in 2007. But it really didn't take off until probably around 2015. And I thought it was a great time to talk about this because we are at the height of the streaming platform era. And I want to talk about its place in history as a vessel to listen to music with. And joining me this episode is Kavita Gill and John Waller. And we're doing this distance style again. Have to do it over Skype. And, you know, the, the point of this entire thing was to be able to get together with your friends and be able to flip through a magazine and comment on different things. These episodes have uh, taken a different shape, but that's great. It's just a new way of doing things. And, you know, it's it's caused us to like really dive deep into some articles. So that's, you know, again, why I wanted to choose a, a magazine like this, where it's focusing on one big topic. And that's what we're going to do. So there really isn't going to be any laughing at uh, crappy old advertisements and shitty old tech. <laughs> But we do talk about a lot of uh, important things, past and present, and we'll get into the billboards too. So join us as we go back to the moment that was September 2007 with New York Times Magazine and Rick Rubin. Okay, so we're looking at the September 2nd, 2007, New York Times Magazine, and the cover story is on Rick Rubin, and the title of this is Can Rick Rubin Save the Music Business? And this is 2007. So 2007 was, I don't want, I don't know if it was a pivotal year, but we, I'd say, gone about seven years into this point of, of music theft. Everything up to this point was stealing mp3s that's why the music industry was in crisis 2007 it had kind of gone past just the stealing and apple had spun up the um itunes music store by that point right so yeah. it wasn't just it, it was both this piracy issue that uh, piracy had basically become a like thing it was a thing that by this by 2007 you know it what napster kind of got big what 1999 mm -hmm. 2000 yeah so you're going on seven eight years now of it but at the same time they were also i think feeling like apple's getting too much power in the music industry yeah and they referenced they that this, 
Yeah, they referenced that in this article briefly, saying that Steve Jobs really, he was the one who really understood the power of Napster, and he mm-hmm. and he really harnessed that with iTunes, but all the money from iTunes was going to him. <laughs> it wasn't going to artists. So again, like we all kind of adopted that. We went from CDs to iTunes, and if you were buying from iTunes, then the Apple Music Store, then the music is going to Steve Jobs. It wasn't going to the artists. So now we're at another point where the music industry has shifted to there, but artists are still not making any money <laughs> or not as much as they used to. No. And what was interesting for me, like I'm, I don't know a lot about this stuff, but I'm fascinated by it and I love music. And I was absolutely one of those people stealing music like crazy. Like if you remember that Dave Chappelle episode when he goes into the internet, and it's like the music started, everyone just like <laughs> stealing everything and like the sirens are going on, like no one can stop it because that's the thing, right? Like wh- why this was able to happen is because when you have a CD, it is a perfect digital copy of the, of the recording, right? And then people were able to be like, oh, we can make a digital electronic version. You do not need the CD. We can now use it with technology and then you can share it. And then there were other ramifications in terms of the legal sense like who owns this who owns the intellectual property rights of this stuff so there's like a lot of stuff going on and in the meantime all of us are stealing everything and no one's getting paid right right? so i just think like um yes you're right steve jobs totally had the um the vision to see that this was uh something big and he could capitalize on it and then here we go into another like possible like what happened to microsoft what was that that antitrust stuff another person you know who has the idea who's got like the market by the throat or whatever absolutely you know yeah it's interesting like looking back at this sort of thing and and jackson i don't know if we've discussed this before but like you know what um you know, Kavita, you mentioned that you were one of those people just like downloading, oh, yeah. downloading. And oh, yeah. I never did it as much as some other people I knew, but mm-hmm. I definitely have like, like there were definitely bands that I got into because I had downloaded something first. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of the people I knew, I think were like you, where it was just, you know, really big music fans who just mm-hmm. wanted to hear stuff. And when you're in your teens or early 20s, you know, you can't, you, you don't have the budget to hear everything. And especially, you know, I mean, for the people I knew, especially if you're into sort of um, like indie rock or independent stuff, you know, you weren't seeing much of that on uh, TV or on the hearing it on the radio. Mm-hmm. So there was at at the time Napster appeared for bands that didn't have a major label push. It was the best way to find them. And if you were fans of those types of things, there was a total lack of of, of a way to find these bands. So the so you know now that's kind of the. Uh, defense of like the virtuous you know music fan i mean then there was just the people who just didn't want to pay for it for sure straight up for real oh yeah absolutely for real and i was definitely like absolutely i just feel like what i'm not going to defend my behavior at all here but i'm just going to say it was one way too easy it was just like way (laughs) way too easy 
And to your point, like, I'm one of those people who loves obscure music. I love music from different countries, different genres, et cetera, et cetera. And like, yeah, if people are putting this stuff up there, it was, it was wonderful to go and learn and explore and hear different things. And friends would give you downloads of stuff too, to be like, Hey, check this out. This is amazing. And it was, I don't know. It was just like, it was very, for the, for the listener, it was great for the bands, not so much, but from the article, it did mention, and I didn't realize this, like that, let's see, I really don't understand how the structure works, but like um, merchandising and touring is actually the way that bands make a lot of their money. Yeah, for right? sure. Yeah, absolutely. So my question is, is that, so even with this rampant feeling, did that, did that like hinder the bands or did that hinder the actual labels? It's interesting because there were so many different attitudes within the music industry as well. Like obviously you had the big names who were complaining very loudly, but then there were some bands who just seemed to sort of shrug it off and never really made a fuss about it. Right. And um, in this article, <clears throat> pretty soon on, I mean, pretty early in this article, and we can get to what the actual like thesis and everything of this article is, but mm -hmm. um, David Geffen has a quote saying, only 10 years ago, companies wanted to make records, presumably good records, and see if they sold. But panic has set in. And now there's no clear answer about how to fix that problem. But I still believe that the top priority at any record company has to be coming up with great music. And for that reason, Sony was very smart to hire Rick, as in Rick Rubin. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's exactly, you know, plays off the point John was making that, yeah, you could take a lot of chances with bands. You'd you'd hear something, you'd think like this could take off, and you could you could nurture a lot of different bands and see, you know, like throw the spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks. And someone's gonna, you know, end up selling a million records and some are not. But you they had the money to put into that. They stopped doing that at this point. They were scared to death. They didn't have any money. And especially the record industry. I mean, artists Yes, I think artists always made a lot of their money off of merchandising and touring. If you're playing stadiums, you are making that money. You're obviously paying out to a lot of people, but that's where you were making a lot of money. The record labels were making money off CD sales. And when they aren't doing that, then they really can't nurture artists. They can't bring people in. They're struggling. So it's not like I have a lot of sympathy for record labels because I think they screw over bands a lot of times and like aren't fair to artists. But I mean, that's a pivotal part of the equation. You have to have these labels that are putting these artists out and marketing and it's cyclical then, right? Like it's, it's symbiotic in that sense. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, there's a, there's a cynical way of looking at that Geffen quote though. And it's about the fact that labels want to sell records. And the cynical way of looking at it is that they only need one hit song and the record will sell. Mm -hmm. And one thing that the internet kind of broke open, and I, you, I think this is referenced in the article somewhere, the fact that... Um, you know, in 1993, if you heard a song on the radio that you loved, you went out and bought, paid 10 to $15 for the entire record. Mm -hmm. And how many times have you bought a record where the single 
was the only good song or the best song on the record. For sure. Whereas once the internet came along, it was, oh, no, I only need that. Once the iTunes music store came along, oh, I can just buy the hit single for 99 cents. I don't have to buy the entire record to get that one song. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because I know that I definitely, in the 90s, bought a number of CDs where I was like, oh, I only really wanted one song off of that. Sure. Um, And and how, I guess the cynical view would be, how aware of that was the music industry to the point where they were kind of exploiting that and being like, uh, yeah, we'll just put out this band's record. They've only got one good song, but the rest of it, will, we'll just fill it out and we'll sell it for 10 bucks or 15 bucks. Well, the there's a kind of a major point in this article as well that all these people like Rick Rubin and David Geffen um, uh, people reference in this article, they all come from an album background where you had to make albums. And Rick is, you know, at the one point in this, he's just listening to new artists and he's listening to one song and he says, yeah, I think we've got something here. And then he tells his assistant, okay, let's hear something else. And then as soon as he hears the next thing, he's kind of shaking his head going, he looks disappointed. And he says, and you wonder why people don't buy CDs anymore. (laughs) One song is great and the other is, well. And his entire approach was, no, every song has to be good. And he references that in the article. He says, people think that you just write 10 songs and then you're done. And when they come to me, they come to me with 10 songs. I pick out two and I say, these are good. Go write eight more. And so that's another big point you know, playing off what John said, is the album like a passe thing? Because people were very concerned with like making an album. There was the 60s up until the Beatles, essentially. People were just putting out singles. People just made songs. It was all about songwriting. Then the Beatles and bands like that changed it where you were writing an entire album and the whole album kind of flowed together. And that went on for a long time. Because that album format was just the popular format, you could just put out a single and put out a bunch of forgettable stuff and you'd have to buy the CD. And now that they're at this point, they're not selling music, they're not selling albums, but they are selling the single. And why make the whole record now? I think I can bridge these two together. So this is where art meets commerce, right? So Mm -hmm. Jax, what you're saying is, is that the long play is an album, it's an artistic expression of the musicians, of an artist. They create a mood, they create a statement, whatever that might be for that particular album, which is wonderful and beautiful, and that allows them to express themselves and what we have come to love. And back in the day, listening to long play vinyl, that was it. You would just let the vinyl play, You would it would create a mood in your atmosphere, and you would be into it or not, or whatever. What, John, you were saying is, is that So when I was growing up, I had cousins from the UK who would come and visit us in the summer and we would go and visit them. And when we would go shop, we were all into music and we'd go shopping and we would take them to H&B or whatever. And they would look and they'd be like, where are the singles? And we're like, what? Mm. They're like, you have to buy the album. They're like, oh, no, 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 no. In England, they're like, you just can buy the single. And what bands would do is they would like, for example, the Chemical Brothers, they would come up with like block rocking beats and they would have maybe like two DJs remix it on a single and it would be like three pounds. So that would be mm. what, like six bucks for us. Mm. So you didn't have to buy the whole album. You would you would just buy the single back to what Jackson was saying. So I don't know why in Canada, I don't know if the States is 
different than us, but it's like they don't they didn't do that model here. But that model existed of buying singles in other places. So I feel like Apple was like, why don't we just do that again? So this article on Rick Rubin, it's called Can Rick Rubin Save the Music Industry? And so Rick Rubin has been brought in at this point in 2007 to be the new head of Columbia Records. Now, he's sharing duties with another guy but um, who has hired him. But this is another point uh, where this was happening, I think, quite a bit through record, through record labels and large labels like uh, Columbia, who's owned by Sony, where they were bringing in producers and artists to start running things because it was an old model of just, you know, MBA business grads who were running labels and it wasn't artists who really understood what needed to happen to to push things forward. So Rick Rubin has been brought in. Uh, he didn't even care and he didn't want to do this. He was persuaded and he had problems with uh, Columbia Records in the past. But now he's been brought in uh, to, you know, use his expertise and just do like an entirely fresh face of this company to try to push records out and his i think his entire outlook is because he's a producer and he's not a songwriter he's not anything like that he's just incredible at realizing potential and then elevating it this guy does not really play an instrument he says in this article he doesn't know how to use a board he cannot push buttons he just listens but he has an incredible vision. He's kind of like Steve Jobs, like who we referenced before, where he just he just gets it and he can just kind of be the conductor of a symphony. You know, obviously he's he's a uh, big figure in the music industry, and I kind of knew sort of the Coles notes about him, but I didn't know that he didn't even have like he wasn't a technical guy even, you know. And I wonder if that was you know this is a guy who seems I mean is very smart. And seems like he loves to learn. And I wonder if that was a conscious choice to never actually touch a board and really use it, because then that would take away from from his vision. Maybe that would hinder it in some point where he was like he wasn't paying enough attention when he was turning knobs and playing with EQs. He just wanted to hear a voice and say, nope, the chorus is in the wrong place. The verse is the chorus, things like that and shift things around. Yeah, that makes sense to me. If you're doing like an actual like real kind of recording session, like there's a lot going on, and especially if you're kind of adding the technical aspects. So, uh, yeah, that, that would totally make sense to me if he was like, I don't even want to get involved in this because it's just it's like a, a pit that you fall into of like, mm-hmm. oh, this mic isn't in the right spot or mm-hmm. like, let me check this fader. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think you guys are right. I think he has like, I don't want to like a coach doesn't sound like the right term, but there's some sort of like, like, a, like surefying or like some sort of like emotional creative support that he gives to these artists to make them feel heard, listened to the way he can talk to them. So maybe you're right. If he's fiddling with knobs and going down this rabbit hole, he's actually not listening to them and paying attention to their like emotional needs. And his approach to music is very like uh, very, very ethereal, approach it's very holistic like he's a very special mind very special mind like it's yeah he's a big picture person but he's one of those people who i admire in the sense that this is something i'm always trying to develop in myself as a quality is being able to like zoom out and see the big picture but then zoom in and focus in on the details and kind of do that seamlessly 
you know, and not get stuck in yeah. one perspective. And he seems to be that kind of individual. And he says in this article too, and I actually just listened to another interview with uh, songwriter producer Linda Perry today. And these are two people from, you know, about the same generation. And they both had the same sort of mindset where Rick Rubin's talking about how he just does stuff that he likes. He just produces things that he likes. He and he doesn't care if anyone else likes it. He's often right, but he just picks things that he like. And I think he just has a good enough sense of the world and music and everything now that, I mean, he can take an artist elevate them bring them up to their best potential but also he's just working with artists that he wants to work with and he just produces things he likes and they just often work out and i think that's a great philosophy it's not doing something for everybody else and what everybody else what you think they will like and impressing other people if the music industry and people like this were just constantly working on what they liked and not what they think everyone else would like then they'd be in a lot better spot. And I mean, not to say that they're not. I mean, I can't comment on the entire music industry right now, and I don't think it's ever been horrible. There's always been good stuff, and there's always been bad stuff, and there's always been stuff that I like and things that I don't like but that other people are really fond of. And obviously, like, I can't talk about, like, really young artists right now. Like, I mean, I'm not in that world anymore. And I can't say if they're good or bad, but I think that's just an amazing philosophy all around. If you're doing what you like and you're not getting some person, some A&R person telling you how you should sound and being produced in a certain way, if everybody just did what they wanted as an artist, things would sound and be in a completely different universe right now. When you pair that with the anecdote about him sort of saying, the first eight songs they come to me with, they go, okay, you've got one song, go back and write more, is just trying to also kind of say, look, you need to have at least this level of quality or consistency. You know, it's, it is this, there's an element of kind of an old school A&R thing, but it, it is more from a perspective of, is this good music? Is this sellable music? And not just or is this appealing music? I'm not just like, can we sell this to someone or yeah. do, you know, will the kids like this? It's more of a, no, this is, this is good or it's not, you know, this needs work or it doesn't. Yeah. And if it is good, then it will sell. And you should never, he, I don't think he's ever in that mindset of, is this going to sell? What am I going to do with this to sell? He's just going, let's just make this as good as possible. And he's not even thinking about the business end. But at the same time, he must, in the back of his mind, that's his philosophy. If it's good, then people will buy it. If it's a good product and we've worked hard on it, then it'll, there's no reason why it can't sell. 100%, Jackson. From what I read from the article and what I've gleaned is that he is an artist producer. Like, mm -hmm. he wants that artist to do their best work. And he's like, what is your, what is your thing? What is your vibe? What is it that you're wanting to say? And like you said, like, you know, he, he gets these songs and he's like, two or three are good. He's like, okay, I kind of get you. I kind of feel you there. It's like he's helping them to realize who they are and to shape themselves and to challenge themselves and to do the work that artists are, you know, like the work that they probably want to do, that they're aspiring to do. And that's where the producer comes in, right? So, I, yeah, I do very much get that he has like a very much, he's very much into the 
the emotional, creative, spiritual connection with uh, the people, the talent that he's working with. And like, like you said, I don't, I don't like going into offices. He doesn't like it, so he doesn't do it. Mm-hmm. He sets up these beautiful, cool homes where like Jim Morrison hung out or whomsoever, or Sam Cook's house or whatever, mm-hmm. where they're all like, you know, record in here. This has a good vibe in it. This has like legacy to it. Go for it in here. Mm-hmm. You know, like he, he's very, he pays attention to that stuff. And the fact that Neil Diamond is still talking to him and still wants to work with him speaks volumes after that spyware thing, right? Yeah. So. Well, yeah. it wasn't Rick's fault. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, but the thing is, that's a bad experience for anyone. Yeah, yeah. And anyone could have walked away and like just could have pointed fingers at one another. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And the reason why he didn't want to work with Columbia from before is because what they did to Neil Diamond. Yes. They put that weird spyware on the album, and this was a big, uh, you know, he loved I Neil Diamond. I remember that. This was a big, I didn't know, I don't remember that, but I just remember from the article and that, like that, that's very upsetting because yeah. then Neil's album got totally royally effed. Yeah, it kind of right? shelved because pretty then, much. Yeah. Yeah. I just want to say that when that when I got um, to that point in the article where they talked about the the Sony spyware thing, I was like, I remember that. Obviously, I didn't know it was Neil Diamond that that was sort of the big CD, or I didn't recall that part. But I absolutely remember when that made headlines uh, when Sony did that. So the whole point was that Rick had worked with Neil very hard on this record. And this was kind of a comeback for Neil. Uh, You know, obviously he's not the most relevant artist in the 2000s. And he came back and I think it references that that album went to number four, like really quickly, like almost right off the bat. And then there was spyware put on it and then they had to pull it out of stores. So he was on a forward trajectory, (laughs) really like going to get like, you know, like a third wave of his career. And then he got it all taken away from him because these guys <laughs> decided to put spyware on his CD. That's heartbreaking, man. And that's gross. Also, I know. that's gross. Like what like what NBA grad like thought that was oh, a yeah. good idea. Exactly. Like that's so creepy. Again, like and if Ruben was the head of this company at that point, that wouldn't have happened. So then he goes on, so his main thing is he's trying to completely clear the slate and start this company from a new almost so he's he's out number one he says he never will go into an office he doesn't have any sort of phone that they can get a hold of him with he's not a guy that's like you know sitting in an office answering phones and making deals he's actually out trying to find a new office for them because he said no we have to get out of that office and completely into a new one if we want to start fresh these are the kind of plans that he's making And then the main takeaway that I got out of this was that he decides that the way to combat all this theft of music is actually just make a subscription service. And through the subscription service, you'll pay $9.99 or $19.95 a month, and you'll get all the music you want that comes to you, and it'll be on like one platform, but on every device. And now he hasn't realized you know the that the iphone will be coming out and that's where this will be he envisions i think like a walkman type of device or whatever essentially an ipod he said ipods are gone it'll just be this and he essentially has the vision of like it'll be on your laptop it'll be on alexa and it'll be on your phone and you will say so and so play metallica and it will play so this is 2007 when did when did this actually happen? I got Spotify in so, 2005. So at the time... Or 2015. 
the one that I remember was called eMusic, and it actually still exists, but it was like subscribe for like $9.99 a month and download a bunch of MP3s. So I think it started as unlimited and then quickly was like, oh no, that's too much. Um, and it switched to like 35 a month or something, or like 35 MP3s a month. 2007, it was all MP3s, but at the same time, there were things like Pandora, which were trying to like push streaming. Right, right. But I, I kind of forget what it's it started as. Like I didn't use it much, but I remember I knew someone who used it, and it was like one of the first ones that had kind of a a recommendation algorithm. Like when you signed up, you do a little survey of I like this, I like that, mm. and then I think as you listened, it sort of adapted or something. Um, and then eventually, I guess as yeah, like as you say, um, Jackson, like when the iPhone comes out and then all of a sudden, like having a phone with data on it becomes a big thing, then streaming really kind of has an opportunity to sort of take over from MP3s and then Spotify shows up. Um, but going back to eMusic, one of the things that I remember, one of the reasons why I remember it so well is because you go through those early to mid 90s or 2000, sorry. And um, there were so many like lawsuits. Like it was the time of the, what is it? Recording Industry Association of America, where it was like every day or every week, there was a new headline about the RIAA suing somebody for downloading something or suing uh, mp3.com or Napster. And then they sued uh, Kazaa, I assume. I don't know. Mm -hmm. They were suing everybody. Um, and I remember eMusic because they, they got their start by making deals with a bunch of indie labels. And so they were the first ones because I remember for me at the time, I was like, Ooh, that's actually something that sounds really interesting. I have a vague memory of trying it out, but it must've not been for very long. Um, and then there's actually one thing I want to mention that's really interesting about what Ruben suggested, and you kind of touched on this, Jackson, is that in the article, he says he names the price point 1995. I guess you could debate how visionary he might have been in terms of, you know, predicting streaming or looking at, uh, like, surely he was aware of the subscription services that existed at the time. So eventually you'll just be able to sort of call up anything at any time. But the price point he picked out is really, really interesting because you look now, Spotify, $9.99 a month, mm -hmm. but there's a lot of controversy and issues about their ability to pay art. Well, I won't say ability to pay artists. That's a very generous way of putting it. They don't pay artists very much, yeah. if anything at all. No. And they sort of claim, well, we can't do anymore. And that there's a lot of debate about whether or not um, 10 bucks a month is too little, whether charging that little kind of devalues it at all. Um, I know personally that if Spotify was all of a sudden like, like this is in Canada, so if they were all of a sudden like, oh, it's not $9.99 anymore, it's uh, $14.99, I'd probably just be like, oh, okay. Like, yeah. I don't know what price point they could go up to where I'd give it away, where I'd actually be like, oh, that's too much. Um, but he was 
he was probably right about the price point, and that's sure. most, to me the most interesting part of it. I mean, people are cheap. You know, you always got to start low to like entice them. But when you, if you if there was just a voice like Re- Ruben, who could have just said, "You could pay nineteen ninety five a month for everything," <laughs> or you could pay nineteen ninety five for one CD. I mean, that's that's the only argument you really have to make. Like, how much money have you spent on physical copies of music in your life? I know I'm, you know, hovering around the 20,000 mark probably. <laughs> and how much of it sucks and how much of it ended up in used bands. I could have just put it all in a subscription service and gotten whatever I wanted. And can you imagine that this, that the music industry thought of this immediately in 2000? We're like, oh no. They're, they figured out a way to steal music. Instead of suing everyone and trying to stop this, realizing immediately, we're never going to get ahead of this. Do a subscription service right now. We'll we'll figure this out right now. Can you imagine mm-hmm. how different the past 20 years would have been in listening? Well, that, that comes down to, like, human nature, ego, and fear. Like, you know, if the day ever happens that we run out of fossil fuels, what do you think, like, all of the big oil companies are going to be doing? Like, you know what I mean? Like, we could say that now. It's like, why don't we switch to, like, renewables etc they're just going to fight tooth and nail for everything else so i mean i just think that that that's just a human nature thing like you said people are cheap um i think yeah you have to spell it out for them and say that to them you're like well you used to spend 9.95 on just one album why mm. can't you just spend nine like you know 19.95 or whatever and you have everything yeah you know uh no i i, I see your point and i think you need to break it down i feel that is happening now more and more with people, especially in like things like clothing and stuff, sustainable clothing and all of that, where they're like giving you the numbers and how much water they're using and what kind of cotton they're using and stuff like that. I think people, I think, yeah, if you spell it out for them um, and you let them know, I think that will make a difference. But if you just say, oh, it's this, like Spotify just being like shrugging their shoulders is like a bit, you know. And they've set their price point and everyone kind of follows it. Like I yeah. just checked... Title and Apple mm-hmm. Music and their basic plans are also nine ninety nine a month. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, Apple Music has a four ninety nine student membership, which is kind of interesting because that does kind of say, oh, hey, young people, young people who want to listen to uh, whatever they can. Mm-hmm. We know you don't have as much money, mm-hmm. but I wonder how these sorts of things do. You know, because Title also has its. Uh, I, I'm not trying to advertise. Uh, anything here uh like it's got like a hi-fi high fidelity version for 20 are there many students signing up for the 4.99 one or are they just like duh i can steal it i think the stealing music is gone because that's that's even harder i mean that's 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 more inconvenient and i was Mm -hmm. gonna say before like how were we discovering music before this when mp3s came in all of a sudden there was a preview so I mean, I could just download things. I mean, whether I liked it or not, I was really interested and you could just ditch it or keep it. And that's what this is now. But that was work. I mean, especially like, you know, you want to talk about like 20 years ago where we're not, we're, we're far removed from that. But I would leave Napster on all night. You'd put in like 30 songs and on my university, like Ethernet, this was like hardwired in. It still took forever to download a song. So, I mean... <laughs> like the, and then obviously things progressively got easier and easier but even now just going in and having to like go to LimeWare or whatever you would use whatever channel Pirate Bay to just get something 
is way less convenient than just using Spotify. Even Spotify is free if you just want to listen to ads. Well, yeah, and I and that's the thing I forgot. That's the thing that we kind of actually have to mention is the fact that it has a it has a free plan. Yeah. Does Tidal have a free plan, Kavita? I have no idea. I don't believe so, but I don't know. I got, well, I got, the way I got my title subscription was my friend's boyfriend uh, went to the Jay-Z concert and they gave out these little cards that had a free three-month trial to title, which he gave me one. And so I, you know, used the code or whatever, used it for three months and was like, oh my God, this is amazing. And then I heard from other people that, oh, they actually pay the artists more. And then you could also get, I think they have exclusive deals with certain artists. I'm not sure if that's a thing anymore, but I remember that they did at that time. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, for like 10 bucks a month, worth it. I mean, this was I basically, think Spotify yeah. is the only one that has like a, an actual real free option. And I think that's part of the reason why they're one, as big as they are, and two, kind of the villains of the music industry. Spotify as well, they will do the same thing. Well, they'll give you three months free I mean, I've done this, so I fought it forever because I'm cheap again. I don't want to pay subscriptions to anything. But I got that three, that free three-month deal like six times. I kept canceling it, and they'd keep offering it to me again. I was like, oh, I'll just keep doing this because you keep doing it. But eventually, number one, it's like the Columbia House Records, you know, when you don't send in the piece of mail or whatever they to stop a CD from coming to you. It's exactly this. All of a sudden, you forget. They have your credit card. <laughs> so you'll forget after that month, and all of a sudden, it'll get charged. You go, oh, God. Well, I'll just put it in my phone as a little reminder to you know, cancel it at the end of this month. And then you forget. And then all of a sudden, you just go, well, I'm listening to this all day. I'll just pay $9.99 a month. And that's exactly what happened to me. <laughs> but I, I will say I use Spotify a lot. It's the one thing in my life that I can actually justify paying $9.99 a month for. Not as I'm not advertising Spotify here. Would you pay more for it? Would you pay more for it? Yeah, again, you're right, John. If it went up to like fourteen ninety nine, yeah, I would. Because then you'd just be like, Oh, it's four more bucks. And then all of a sudden it's twenty five bucks. I don't know if I would go that far, but the way inflation goes and the way time goes I mean, I don't I don't think I'd pay that much more unless there was like real evidence that they were paying artists more Mm -hmm. they were paying more royalties for sure Um, and that's why i wanted to ask kavita like what kavita did you use spotify before no i just have it for free and uh where i work we use uh spotify and i have to say again i do not pay any money to spotify their playlists are so much better and like titles? their soundtracks are so much better. Yeah, way, way better than Tidal for sure. For sure, for sure. Tidal, I can find very obscure stuff, uh, obscure stuff, but so can I on Spotify. Well, I just wanted to bring up the point that they brought up in the article, which I was like, oh my God, that's so true. You don't learn about new music via radio anymore, right? I think we all know that. And what they were saying was, you know, they put like a song on, I don't know what, Grey's Anatomy or Gossip Girl. Mm -hmm. And suddenly that song was being downloaded like crazy, like fire. And it is so true. If you have uh, a person in production on the side of curating a beautiful playlist, essentially a soundtrack for a TV show or a film, you know I've got my Shazam up being like, what is this? What is this? What is this? And I will go 
and hunt for it. And now very convenient. I don't have to go to Napster or Shazam or like a whatever pirate Bay. I just immediately go onto my title and like do, 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 put it in and be like, wow, this is amazing. And then I learn about a completely different genre of music or artist, for example. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was a very interesting point. And I think that is very relevant till today and our Netflix age that we're in. Mm -hmm. You know, like at that time, we didn't really have what we have now. We didn't have YouTube. Like this is 2007. YouTube was 2005. Mm -hmm. It was in its infancy still. Uh, people were not watching music videos anymore. MTV or MTV wasn't creating them. They, they weren't playing them. Maybe people were making them, but I have no idea why they would. And yeah, we were we were at the time when people were still watching television, like cable television. Now everything is specialty networks and Netflix. And there was really, again, like only a few things pushing, you know, like like discovering music in like large formats. So they talk about in this uh, high school musical. And so people were like pushing out music through that. And they were saying that was the number one thing that they were using, like American Idol and High School Musical, and thinking, how lame was this era? This is awful. This is how you're making music and pushing it out there? Just this bubblegum syrup shit? It, like, two things kind of changed in the early 2000s, and one was TV, and I think, I, I, I'd almost say it had a lot to do with HBO, because I have memories of, like, watching Sex in the City with my roommate and a Mogwai song was at the end of a Sex and the City episode. Really? And I was like, I did a double take and was like, what is happening right now? But then in the early 2000s, you get the iPod ads. Yeah. And having your song in an iPod ad was like, that was a rocket ship to the moon. That was career maker. That was, that you was, know, that was Spice big moment. How many people <laughs> had never heard Jet before? How many people oh had God. never heard Feist before? Mm -hmm. They saw mm -hmm. those ads. And I get it. And like, just to touch on their point, like it's it's cool factor. It's free collage, right? It's like Volkswagen back in the 60s did ads that people were like, whoa, out of the box, cool. So I think that whole sellout thing changed with like branding. Like mm -hmm. Apple is cool. It's okay to sell out to Apple. Well, Volkswagen Apple was cool also or whatever. Do you know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. it, it's a it's a it, it's a branding move and it's like a, it's a strategic move. I don't want to call it selling out or whatever i don't know enough about that to to comment on that but just just to that point it's like it's a cool factor and right mm -hmm. and a no tour like someone like you know quentin tarantino <laughs> you know what i mean or you know like that well i was thinking thing. about like mad men or um yeah, or well, like breaking yeah. bad because they yeah. used music a lot yes and those and those count as auteur things yeah, yeah i would say so yeah showrunner auteur thing. yeah and uh, and so yeah, I agree. It's like a it's a cool factor. It's taking uh, music to a different level. But it's like I, I was just speaking to just the exposure for regular regular people now because most people would listen to the radio and hear something, and they bring it up in the article that it's like that's not how it happens. It's like now happening through prestige TV or subscription, you know, TV or subscription um, music, uh, and that's how people are learning about stuff now, right? And well, I actually, found that you know, to be very interesting and right. relatable, you know. The other show I remember, and this is not a show I watched uh, much, um, but The O.C. I remember The O.C. Mm. having a lot of, like, cool indie bands on it. Like, yeah. it, um, And they weren't the first show to do it. Was... Okay. I feel like they were... They Who were, were... That? What show was... What show were the Flaming Lips on? 
Fleming lives around it. I show. don't know. I feel like the OC was pretty close. I mean, you know, when I think back to other shows, if I'm just like referencing, you know, like 90210 or something like that, they never had anyone cool on, you know, or like friends. They they go to a Hootie and the Blowfish concert. Like there's a big reference there. Like nothing was good. But the OC. Oh, okay. Hold on a second. What? I just want to cut you off there for a quick second. Okay. It was 90210. The Flaming Lips were on no. 90210. No. Oh. That's impossible. <laughs> I didn't want to say it. I'm like, it's didn't want to say it until I could check, but 1994, they were on what? She Don't Use Jelly on 90210. Where wow. were they? Brunch. What were those nerds at? <laughs> they saw the flaming lips. I watched the OC. Well, they they the had, yeah. Pit. They played at the Peach Pit. Of course they played at the Peach Pit. They, there was nowhere else. Those guys hung out at that <laughs> diner for their entire lives. Nothing else was going on in university. Let's go to the diner. Yeah, I think I discovered the Walkman off of the OC. They played at their yeah, club that they would the go and hang out. Yeah, that's the band I was at. gonna name. I remember, I remember them. Um, I want to say Death Cab for Cutie, but they. I'm not I don't sure know if Death Cab was actually on. They were referenced a lot on that show. The Killers, 100% were, like in their infancy. They were. That oh. was like I think a big break for them being on the OC. Question: Is this because all of this like mega conglomerate started happening? Like, you know what I mean? Like some William Randolph Hearst shit started happening where it's like <laughs> this huge, you know what I mean? This media company buys another media company and they're cross-promoting. Mm -hmm. For sure. Right? Like, wasn't that what was happening? I don't like, know. Because was that it? OC was a Fox show, but I don't know who produced it. That is an interesting question because right? sometimes, like, for example, Sony did make a lot of TV shows. But that's also another one where, like, You've got the showrunners and how much influence. Because if you've got a big hit, they've probably got enough influence to say, like, oh, let's have this band on or something, right? But, I mean, also just why not? It's not like you can put this on any show. You couldn't just throw an indie band on Mad Men. Like, you know, the Rolling Stones don't yeah. just show up there. But, you know, the OC just had the perfect format for this. This is just a show about teenagers, and they go to shows. So it's easy to throw a band in there. And it's it was there was a perfect format for it. So I could see that happening. But I did want to say that I feel like this whole thing about like we were talking about like a half selling out and like how you would discover music and how music was being put out there in the past 20 years. I feel like everyone from teenagers to, you know, people in their 40s, whatever, they all kind of had some sympathy at this sympathy at this point. They all knew that artists weren't making the money that they were. It used to be you just made songs and albums and toured and made music videos. And that was it. And now a lot of that was taken away. And so I think everybody developed a little sympathy going, well, it's fine. They got to, you know, pay the bills. They got to do a watch ad. They do got to do a car ad, whatever it is. I think I completely threw out that sell. I mean, at least for, you know, major label artists. Like I didn't really care at this point. Selling out was a term for 15 year olds. And, you know, when I was 25, I'm like, who's selling out? What does that even mean anymore? Yeah, and I think that's reserved for people who actually make music and are paying their dues. Do you know what I mean? I don't think that's for me, like the listener. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not. It's not for me to call for to call people out on. So that's why I'm hesitant to say it. Mm -hmm. But yeah, like people, blood, sweat, and tears, touring, touring, doing the work, working, working, and not getting their break or whatever. Then I mean, they have they have a they're entitled to their opinion because they put their blood, sweat, and tears behind it. You know. And another cool thing here in this article, Columbia Records began a program at this time when Ruben took over, and the program was called Big Red. I have no idea why. 
Um, <laughs> but right, the company, right, right, right. it says the company invited 20 college students from Harvard, Penn State, and the University of Miami to work on various music projects. Um, so they were paid interns. And at the end of the internship, the students took part in a focus group that were closely observed by uh, Steve Barnett and Ruben, the, both the co-heads, uh, to like, essentially you know, discuss their findings over the summer. The, the, the focus groups uh, expressed what they already knew, that no one listens to the radio anymore, they mostly steal music, and MySpace is over. Um, but then, I love that last point, the fact that yeah, MySpace in 2007, over. they were like, eh, it's done. Uh, even though I was discovering a lot of stuff or like following band pages on Although. MySpace at that time. But then they took it a step further after this with these kids. They actually brought them back to work uh, at the label and they created a word of mouth department. And the entire oh, thing wow. was just now at this time it was on like in message boards and everything that they literally just had an organic word of mouth. Everybody tell your friends about this. We've got something to push. You all tell about it. You go on message boards. You go on forums i don't know at this time and just talk about this and push this and essentially this is just the organic version of social media this is just social media what we consider it now but this was just people actually telling you about it physically this is marketing business 101 mm -hmm. it, you ask and you learn and you go to any business class they will teach you number one they're like you can spend as much money as you want on advertising but you just need one person to turn around and tell a stranger, hey, I got a haircut over there and it was fantastic. Mm -hmm. Or the coffee I drank over there was superb. And they will go, oh, and they will go and they will check it out. That's all you need is an actual regular person just to say, talk about their experience. And the same negatively. If they're like, I ate there and I found hair in my food. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. They'll be like, black, I'm never going there again. So genius. Like that is marketing business it's 101 it was genius for him to do that just to get their cool little friends to talk to each other mm -hmm. and just spread the word like fire right you're absolutely right do you know was, when ahead. i when i read about uh, that part it, i kind of jumped ahead to you know i guess not long after this or during this time like music blogs became a thing yeah and that's true. right around that music blogs are kind of an interesting mix because you know, in some ways, eventually sites um, like music blog sites or even sites like Pitchfork, I think, got co-opted in a way. Because now, you know, for the last bunch of years, you know, you go on something on like Pitchfork and there'll be a news story. So-and-so has new track. And it'll just feel like a PR person just kind of was reaching out for sure. You know, it's not, it's not, there's, there's not some blogger being like, Oh, I found this track. Mm -hmm. It'll just be like, Oh, we got this press release in this track and this media kit mm -hmm. and we'll just write about it. Feel like it's kind of just come full circle back into um, these major websites just being kind of powered largely by PR people. Ah, uh, yeah. Okay. Like, I'm starting, I'm kind of wondering like how, because I remember, yeah, like in those late 2000s where the marketing 101 seemed to be like, oh, let's get some, let's hire some young people and the young people will go out and be like, hey kids, let's all 
do this and listen to that. <laughs> and like, that was like what all the marketing companies wanted to do. Cause I would imagine kids these days on social media can be pretty savvy. Sure. And I, I can't imagine that uh, kind of fake marketer trying to drum up organic yeah. interest was, it was probably exposed. It was seen through. Like, I don't think you could do that anymore. You know, like, no, it's, no. Um, I mean, kids are Buscemi, Steve Buscemi on 30rock.gif. Hello, yeah. fellow kids. <laughs> wearing a shirt called Music Band. Yeah. Amazing. Kids kids can see through bullshit. And I mean, I think that's a lot major flaw in like adults thinking, oh, we can just feed kids whatever and they'll just eat it up. But they don't. They get it and they know what's cool and they know when to drop stuff fast. I don't know who I've tried to find this out. I don't know who wore a Thrasher skateboard shirt out there, but whoever did, Thrasher skateboards, you know, are should they can retire. <laughs> like, they're just a skate magazine with a niche crowd. Justin Bieber or someone wore a Thrasher shirt once and they ate it up. And that's all you have to do. One cool person tell you, this is cool. That's it. Yeah, that's my thing. It's like, you know, where they're picking it up, that's, where where it's at where are they getting influenced at and like and at the end of the day they are smart they are savvy but like we're all monkeys at the end of the day and it's like you know what's influencing these little monkeys do you know mm -hmm. and how do they get like you know what's like what's you know what's creating stars in their eyes and like getting them hooked on something that's i think that's the kind of key maybe that's like the magic the magic secret for pr or whatever and like you said engineering stuff sometimes works and sometimes it doesn't work you know well and i want to like go engineering back. pr right yeah absolutely and i want to go yeah. back to this word of mouth thing because mm -hmm. you know it ties in well with number one how did you discover music when you were young and i mean what were the best ways to find music and i feel like now it it's 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 lost its community uh, because it's all about the individual now, everybody on a like an individual phone and everything. And I discover music through Spotify. I mean, I'm just constantly going through and going through, and I need recommendations. And it's never going to be as good as my friend in high school, who I thought was super cool and was listening to cool stuff, telling me things. There's still writers. There's still, I think, bloggers. There's still people on Twitter who, it, it, as you mentioned, there's always those, like back in the 90s, there was those cool guys who knew about everything, but you're not sort of just encountering them in, in person. Like when you were younger, you'd be in school in a class with the guy who seemed to know all the music and he was just there. Yeah. And he just showed up in your life and all of a sudden you're like, oh, who's this guy? But now, you know, I mean, we're older. We're now it's like we have to kind of find those people. Mm -hmm. But they're they are out there. Meanwhile, you've got things like Apple Music where they have the curators. They have people creating playlists. And while I personally didn't find those very interesting, you know, that's sort of the new equivalent. Mm -hmm. um, right. I feel know, like they have the, they, they have more of that on Tidal, too. I feel that those playlists are very curated. So I actually got title for this month specifically for this podcast. So I could just check it out. I didn't dive too deep into it because uh, Spotify is really taken over. They've bought up podcast networks and, <laughs> and they, that a lot of things are exclusively there uh, now that I listen to. 
But yeah, I felt like the title lists were fairly well curated. And I actually wanted to ask you guys this. Um, when you go through Spotify, Spotify now has an algorithm that really curates to your taste. And you kind of end up, in my opinion, listening to the same thing over and over again. And it's stuff that you already know. And it's stuff that you already like. And I'm always looking for something different. I'm constantly asking people to show me something different. And I think that's a major flaw in that, that it's just kind of recognizing my taste and just giving me more of it to keep me happy. But I'm not that listener. I want something else. What do you think? Abby? Okay. Okay. A few things here. Uh, to your point right there, I think that is just speaking to the person because they're really good at playlists, Spotify. So I think they're just catering to the people who want a mood. You know what I mean? They just give me the same thing. I don't care. I don't want something different, which is fine. And but also in school, guys, like I know you had your like cool friend and he was probably the standout. But to be honest, like there was a lot of herd mentality also in high school when it came to bands and music and, and that came to like social circles and this and that. So a lot of the time, like as much as like, you know, maybe romanticizing, oh, it was so much better back in the day when we were around other people who were hearing music organically. Sometimes it wasn't. And sometimes it was same old, same old. So to John's point about these bloggers and these people on Twitter exposing us to new music, that's the beauty of the internet. The internet is so powerful that it can, you know, connect communities for better or worse. So you can find other people or find the music, Jackson, that you're hunting mm -hmm. for and you want to hear that you've never heard of, but then it also connects like people who feel like disenfranchised men and insult people and white supremacists together. So it's not perfect. <laughs> it's not perfect at all. <laughs> but, wow. But like, went but, to a dark place there. I see, like it's nothing's perfect is basically my point here, right? Like in this day and age, you can go and find things. And if you want to start with your, your subscription services curated person and then get into it and then grow out of it, you can like the internet is at your fingers. Like you can Google, we can Google anything right now and get the answer to it. We don't have to wait until the library opens tomorrow. Remember uh, 10 years ago on Facebook, it's not so common anymore, but if you were listening to a song and you're like, this song's awesome, you went on Facebook and you just posted it and you were yeah. like, that's, but now kids aren't doing that. If, if a 15 year old has a song they love and they want to post it to the internet, I'm guessing they would make a TikTok video yeah, out of it. Yeah, for sure. And I, I bet they so, would. so I'm actually trying to use that as an example of something that's like, it's the, um, it would be organic, user-driven, and right now I'm assuming the companies who are, are trying to chase after it, trying yeah. to run after it. Like, oh, we yeah. want in, we want to be included. Yeah. Do you think it's better? I mean, like, I mean, it's so we're, we're getting to this point where everything is at our fingertips. We can listen to anything we want. But then we're running into these sort of problems and getting things like pushed on us. As a listener, do you think it's the best it's ever been? Or do you think there was another point when it was a lot more fun? I, I personally know that I, if I really wanted new music, I could go get it. Mm -hmm. But I'm just not like I for me, the reliance on the discovery playlist is a, oh, let's see if anything catches my ear. Like. I'm definitely at a point as a 40-year-old man that if finding new music is like a bonus for some people, and I don't know if it's if, if either of you would feel this way, that you still have this need that if you haven't found new music in a while, you just feel, you don't feel right. I know for me, I'm sort of like, 
And any new bands I find at this point in my life, I'm like, okay, that's nice. Mm-hmm. But if if it just got locked to everything I already know and like, I could probably just live happily. Yeah, that's because true. I, I know I could. I know there's places I could find. I could. I could uh, dive into like Bandcamp. You know, I know that's something I've only ever. I've only done a bit. You know, I could find the blogs. I mean, I could easily find twenty new bands a year that I was actually really into. All of them. Now I find two. I discover two acts maybe that I and they're not even new. The two things that I listened to that I thought were like incredible this year. It's not brand new. It's it was Fiona Apple and it was Run the Jewels. <laughs> what but do you it's think? New to you? No, but I know. It's new to you? Well, right? it wasn't like, new I to me. I I already thing. knew those artists, but they put out right, two well, incredible records. That's fine. Listening now, as opposed to, like, when was your, when was it most fun to listen? Okay. I mean, like, is it this accelerated is... with 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 Spotify? <laughs> no, I don't. Well, I don't use Spotify or or a streaming much, service, but, um, streaming platform. So, well, all I'll say is, okay, so what was fun was the thrill of the hunt when I was younger and stealing everything. <laughs> that was a lot of fun. That was great. <laughs> I was Can I ask you one quick question? I just yes, have one quick course, question for you. Of course, yes. What would you say, okay, out of all the, the amount of music that you stole from the internet, what percentage would you say that you actually listened to? Oh, lots of it. Oh my God, I would, I would listen to all of it. But would you say it was like a hundred percent, or was it? Because I feel yeah, like there were some I would people. Because I had a car, I would just download oh, okay. it and I would, okay. I would okay. put it in, I would burn it on a CD and I'd put it in the car. You burn know what I mean? It. And that was a great way that, like, when you're commuting, I was like, oh, I don't have to listen to the radio. I'll just put it here. And I traveled a lot too, so I had a, I had a discman, John, and I would put things in the discman and listen to it. But um, who, who but didn't? to your question, Jackson, like I, I feel like, like I don't know, like I don't, I, like I feel like it was a time and a place for everything. Like at that time, I loved music, technology. This was exciting and new. I could steal stuff. I was so open-minded. I didn't know so many bands. I didn't know like anything about like the '60s or whatever. So it was fun and it was really intriguing. Now, of course, as an age thing, now it's like you've heard everything before, as we know. Things are very mass produced. Things are formulaic. And you're like, I've heard this. This is, you know, they're just trying to do Beyonce here. They're just trying to do this here or whatever. So I be, I have my record collection, which is very precious to me. And I have a whole whack of different things. But in terms of listening now in the modern age as this like weird, you know, ner- nerd listener like collection, I don't know, whatever, I, I do. I take in content like crazy. Like, I will like watch movies or I'll watch TV and I'll be like, what is that song? I will hear an interesting playlist and be like, what is that song? And I can immediately go to the internet and and check it out. And I also have a very cool app where I'll share it with you guys. It's called Radio and it has like a million O's. I don't know if you've heard of it, Mm. but this app basically has a map of the world. Oh, yeah. I don't know who generates it. And have, have you heard of this before? You showed it to me, yeah. Yeah. So it has a map of the world and you get to pick the genre, like not the genre, sorry, the country and the decade. And then you press play and you could like listen to like Somalia in the 70s or the 60s. So I find what I'm doing now is I'm going to other places and other times. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? In other countries. That's what I, where I'm going with my music, plus listening to all of this like 
a cool thing I heard in a coffee shop or this or whatever and shazamming and then going down that rabbit hole. That's kind of my way of doing it. Is one way better than the other? I have no idea. I'm mm. it, Both of them are exciting for me, you know? Well, that's interesting because the one thing that uh, I was just thinking about was as time kind of goes forward and there's just more and more and more music, it's like, as you said, Jackson, you know, you're discovering Fiona Apple. And I know she just put a new record, so I don't know if it led to you kind of listening to her back stuff. But, you know, you can just go backwards, too. Mm hmm. As I've been using uh, Spotify and trying to listen to year-end lists and make my own sort of personal year-end lists, for several years in a row, it was sort of, I had these lists of songs that were like, these aren't new songs at all, but I am hearing them for the first time. And it was, uh, you know, something that I've, I spent all year listening to or something. Music discovery is kind of this interesting phenomenon where it's not just like, the labels want you to discover the new stuff. But you could just as easily discover something old that you've never heard before. Yeah, absolutely. I was about to say something that's not really true, which is as you get older, because even even when you're young, you're like, you know, I didn't really mm -hmm. start listening to the Rolling Stones until I watched a couple of Wes Anderson movies and they mm -hmm. had like prominent roles in there, you know? Right. A lot of times I am, you know, I will say like I'm nostalgic for the past and the way things were or whatever. Our generation and our age group is at a, a really, we were at a unique advantage that we had tangible music and then we switched to digital music. So you could discover all this. People, you know, born in 2005 or whatever really don't have that. I mean, or people born in 2000 will never have that. So I would discover things by just illegally downloading an mp3 but then i would also buy it if i really liked it i i really don't have that much uh bad things to say about the way technology has gone that i have all like an entire universe of music in my phone and i will reference the beastie boys book mike d talking about that saying there's kids right now with this like false nostalgia nostalgia about cassettes and he goes and i don't get it because cassettes suck they were like a terrible medium, if you really think about it. And he goes, when I was a kid, you know, like say 14, I had, he said, I had a Walkman and I, and you could not wear a backpack. That was not cool. You could not leave your house with a bag. So I had the Walkman. I would have to choose my tapes very carefully of what I was bringing that day. I was also wearing tight pants. <laughs> So I just shove these things in my pants. I also had to like make sure I had, you know, good stuff to listen to that day. And also, you know, it had to look good too. If I showed up at someone's house, I had to make sure I had good tapes. You know, I couldn't have some crappy tape to show off. Uh, so he goes, what I wouldn't have given for an iPhone and Spotify in like 1982. Those things were shitty, man. And they would... You would pay money for this thing that would get eaten by your, you know, tape recorder or whatever, or like sound like garbage every time you, too many times you rewound it or played it and it sounded like yeah. garbage eventually. You know what I mean? You had to not only like fix the tape with a pencil, but you would also just, I'd see people, we'd all be doing this in class. You just have a tape on a pen and you'd just be spinning it, rewinding it because rewinding it in the, in the Walkman took up your battery. <laughs> Yes. It would wreck so things. True. So when I wasn't listening to it, I was just spinning it in class to rewind it on a pen. Brilliant. For real.
relatable. That's why I don't want to get like false nostalgia about like, oh, it was so much better. Yeah, it was great listening to music with friends, but then like music was also cliquey. It was also regional. It was also what you could get at your HMB, what they thought you wanted to listen to in your area. Like, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? This is different. This is a different uh, ball of wax. Like if you want to go out there and find cool new shit, you can find cool new shit. There's many ways to do it. Mm-hmm. And with the algorithm or without the algorithm, it's up to you. It's really in your hands. Okay, guys. Last but not least, as I do every episode, who do you think was number one in the Billboard charts? This is September week uh, starting September 6th, 2007. Oh. So Wait, I'm going to. Album or single? This is albums. I'm going to run down the, like, within the top 20. I'm not going to say everything because some stuff I don't okay. care about, and I just want to skip over stuff because I end up spending too much time on stuff that I don't give a shit about. But this is a pretty good list, and it does have uh, – it's a very good portrait of this time and uh, what we were talking about uh, within the article. So I'm going to start uh, with number 18 – this is a debut this week, September, Kala by MIA. <gasps> oh my God. This is very good. This is off to a good start and into it. Okay. Now, I'm, I was actually surprised that MIA debuted this high. I know that her previous album, Arular, am I saying that right? Arular? I think so. Uh, Arular, yeah. Arular, yeah. I mean, it was a big favorite. Uh, in like the music community and I remember Exclaim the Canadian music magazine it was she was artist of the year I think that year uh, with uh, that previous record so obviously she was you know well received and people were waiting for this record but I actually looked it up that and I was pretty sure of this that Paper Planes the obviously the huge single off of this that didn't even get released until the next year until 2008 but it would have been right at this time. I think I'm thinking almost this week uh, in 2007, September, was when I think I heard her for the first time. And I saw her at a festival. I saw her at V-Fest. Yes. And I was absolutely blown away. Yeah. Like, I mean, uh, yeah. floored. I could not believe it. Because I just dismissed her because she, I thought she was an electronic artist. And I just really didn't. I don't know. I just wasn't uh, open to discovering that at the time. And then I saw this person perform and her music was just unbelievable. She's amazing. She's a force of nature. And I do believe on that album wasn't like boys and all of the boys and bamboo banger and Mm -hmm. stuff, which I do think actually got on a lot of um, like soundtracks. Oh, okay. And playlists. Do you know what I mean? Because it was riveting. And she went to the, I believe the Caribbean and did a lot of uh, there was like a lot of Calypso influence, Soka influence on that. Yeah. For um, sure. Dance hall. That's the ah. better uh, genre. Dance hall influence on that album. So I think if Paper Planes didn't make it big. It was other uh, like uh, bad. No bad girls. Was that one on this album? No, it was well? the next no. One. I think that's the other one. But yeah, no. I think it's because some of the other songs were just amazing out the gate. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Oh yeah. Oh, I- I'm thrilled. I'm okay. I'm already thrilled with this list because. 2005 was when uh, her first album. Yeah. Yeah, the first album came out. For yeah. sure. Exciting. Okay. I know. Exciting. Continue. Yeah. That's probably the last good thing, but. 
Okay. It is 2007. It is 2007. Okay, so referencing the article that we were just uh, talking about with Rick Rubin and how people are discovering music in 2007, at number 17, we have the High School Musical <laughs> soundtrack. <laughs> it, uh, last week, fingers. it was at number one. This week, it's 16. It has been on the charts for 85 weeks. That's Zac Efron, I tell you. That boy, he's... That Vanessa was that where he was he was he high school musical so. okay. i didn't see any of yeah weirdly that's the only okay. reason why i know them weirdly coincidentally this morning i watched an snl skit with zach efron and it was like a high school musical skit right. oh really that tracks okay uh and this is pretty cool so i mean referencing where music has gone now and what's exploded in pop we have the debut album of Taylor Swift at number 16. Oh, wow. Ooh. 2007. Uh, this has been on the charts for 44 weeks. Shit. <laughs> Which, album? Which album was that? Number one. It was self-titled Taylor Swift. Oh, self-titled. Taylor Swift by Taylor Swift. Wow. She has been around, eh? She's been around she for has. a long time now. And, I mean, think about that record. She was... Uh, yeah, a teenager, she yeah. and she yeah, was a country she was singer. <laughs> yep. Yeah, she was an uh, acoustic oh guitar God. playing country singer. All right, in number fourteen, this was a huge artist too that I actually didn't know was like charting this high. Uh, number fourteen is Back to Black with Amy Winehouse. Whoa! She was a big deal at this time. Whoa! Twenty-four I feel weeks so on the charts. Out of with this time with 2007 i'm like what is going on this year i know whoa yeah amy winehouse wow so pretty eclectic year actually yeah number 12 is minutes to midnight by lincoln park oh they're still kicking it eh yeah i mean oh, yeah. Well, like wow. 2007 I mean, they were because they didn't on fire come out like they their debut album was like what 99 or something? yeah they were huge so. And I know, I know that they were, you know, when we're talking about, you know, music theft and album sales in the toilet in the, you know, early to mid 2000s, I remember specifically that there was a year, probably maybe like 2002, 2003, where there was, it was the first year in like 50 years or something like that, that the, an artist hadn't broken the million mark and Linkin Park was actually the closest to it. They were that they were the top selling record, uh, like around one of those years, two thousand two, two thousand three. They sold like five hundred thousand wow. records. Wow! Did they do a, co- a collab or whatever with Jay Z? Didn't they do a mm, song with him? I can't speak to that. I don't know. I wouldn't. I wouldn't <laughs> be I surprised. I wouldn't be surprised at I all. Think they did. They were huge. Yeah. Two huge artists. I wouldn't doubt it. Number eleven. Another perfect portrait of two thousand seven. Debut album, self-titled record by the Jonas Brothers. Ew. Wow. (laughs) Another drop in the bucket of boy bands. Can we move on? Yeah, of course we can. And Kavita, we're going to move on to a little Canadian artist that you cannot have a Billboard chart list without Nickelback. Oh, All the right yeah. reasons. Oh, yeah, boo. I don't think I've done one. I was almost hoping you were going to say Celine Dion. Oh, yeah. yeah oh, that would have been so classic. 
classy. I know, but I do <laughs> reference the fact that I have not done one of these a- a- episodes in on a 2000s uh, magazine without Nickelback being on the Billboard charts in the top 20. Are you kidding? These guys are that huge. Tracks. That tracks. Oh. Guys, this, this oh. album, this is at number nine. Last week it was number one. This week it's number 13. How many weeks? This is the, the album All the Right Reasons. I don't even know what song is on this. Probably Photograph or something. Who gives a shit? How many weeks do you think this has been on the charts? Just say the 63. answer. It's gonna be, yeah, it's upsetting. 63. 99. Oh, my God. <laughs> 99 <laughs> weeks. Two oh years. <laughs> Did John leave? Is he gone? No, my door, my do- my room is too big. If 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 I could have reached my door, I would have I would have faked a, a door opening Slam. and closed. But... Like a Homer Simpson. Yeah, that's it. I'm out of here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, wow, that's that's effed up. Yeah, of course. But I, I don't actually want to know. But I'm glad they're not here. Where are they now? Still making hits and selling oh, out arenas joking. oh my god yeah these guys haven't gone away at all okay so this is another thing i wanted to mention in the podcast earlier we do these algorithms do make us live in our liberal bubbles or our cool bubbles or whatever the fuck you want to call you're them. right because i don't i did not know that i'm shocked i'm absolutely oh. shocked oh yeah they're still producing albums and they're not the butt of everybody's jokes they are the butt of everyone's jokes but still they sell at arenas they have so fans all over the world. Wow. I read an article <laughs> recently. Like they sell out the O2 Arena in London, England. Oh my god! <laughs> oh my god! Oh, this is upsetting. I know. Wow! Wow! We're in 2020, and this is 2007. Oh my god! This mm-hmm. is upsetting. Wow. Okay. Uh, okay. and uh, number six, The Duchess by Fergie. Yeah, that that sounds right for 2007. Of course. That's very like. Of course. That's very you know hip hug like the the low slung jeans and oh, the whale right. tail and of the course. you know back tattoo that that track oh Kavita, what a time what a wonderful <laughs> yeah, wonderful I'd, time I'd actually, I'd actually forgotten that like fergie was a thing for a while like yeah. fergie on her own exactly yeah. oh yeah black eyed peas like forget them it's fergie time yeah they yeah. brought her in to make this pop group oh. and oh. then she left <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you gotta be kidding me. <laughs> they played Warp Tour one year, and then all of a sudden, they, Fergie was in the band. Amazing. Amazing. Uh, oh, good for Fergie. Oh, good, good for, for her. the Duchess. Good for her. Okay, uh, another one that comes on every single list. Number five. John, can you guess this? It's on every single list we've ever oh, done. Oh, uh, now? <laughs> yeah. Now, now, t- yeah. now 25, various artists. Now twenty five. Is that like a like? Is that like a dance mix? Is that yeah. like our? Yes. Is that, no, that it's a like version a, of our yes. thing? It's almost well, it's, it's number one. Pop, every time. Isn't it? Yeah, it's just a pop. It's just a pop. Various artists list. It is never ever not on within the top twenty or top ten Be- because of it's Billboard. Selling, right? Of course, it's, like, this it's is the comp of like... all the all the people. Mm-hmm. It's this is the group of people who aren't stealing but <laughs> don't want to buy all of the albums yeah. and they don't understand how Apple works yet because it's so new, I right? It's, it's this, this demographic of people. So they're like, I'll just buy this 
compilation of all the songs I like that are on the radio right now. Yeah, I think it's probably, you know, it was probably sitting in the at the cash at Starbucks and moms bought yes. it for their daughters. Walmart. Fair. Walmart, Walmart. Sure. I feel that's, yeah, that sounds a bit more right. But yeah, yeah, no, I get it. And there's no shade to my comment before. It's just trying to understand, like, who who gets, who buys that album then, like, versus when we didn't have access to that and we're buying, like, like dance hits 90 whatever for sure. or jock rock or whatever you know it was still an easy grab i mean if you just yeah. you could have downloaded all this but you could also these these albums were probably like 9.99 or something too oh yeah they oh, were yeah. probably cheap reasonable yeah <clears throat> um number four is the hairspray soundtrack oh which zach efron again i think you're you're damn right it's zach efron <laughs> filmed oh, in boy, toronto <laughs> record gold yeah i know an album i don't know why didn't he have an album i guess maybe it's true with everybody like kind of you know doing like cross marketing being some sort of singer dancer actor i'm actually surprised that zach efron didn't do that didn't have a record good on him for not doing that. you're right absolutely (laughs) he was maybe big willy style before auto-tuning perhaps i don't know yeah yeah Perhaps. I'm just saying that. Maybe he does have integrity. I don't know. It's possible. Yeah. Um, number three, another great portrait. <laughs> the Hannah Montana 2 soundtrack. Meet Miley oh, Cyrus. Yeah. Miley Cyrus. This yeah. is wholesome Miley Cyrus at number three yeah. with bangs and a little vest on. Aw, she's delightful. She has three um, layers of clothes on this album cover. <laughs> Oh my god! You're like I'm so shocked. It doesn't make any sense. Her tongue is in her she's mouth. Now. she's grown up. Yeah, she's grown up. Good. Uh, and her tongue is in her mouth. Yeah. Oh <laughs> uh, okay, so this is really that era, right? Like this, you know, um, this kind of teeny bopper stuff is still really that's hot. That's what sells. And that's how they're getting their music or buying their music, or their Nana is buying this for mm-hmm. them. I guess it was really the start of the new generation, you know. Mm, yeah. Cyrus Swift. Yeah. The Jonas. Jonas's. Jonas, you're right. The Jonas. Jonas I. The Jonas. No, but that's what I would. Yeah, I really like this because it was. Look at all these yeah. debut people that. Yeah. Look what they became. Is there is there a Spears? Is there a Spears on there this list? There is no Spears on this list. Is there a Timber? Is there a Timberlake on oh, this no, list? No, no, I don't think He's so. Too early. He was earlier. When no. was when was Future Sex Love Sounds? When did that come out? Two thousand five. Was it just before? Two thousand five was also a big year. There was a lot of cool debuts, like cool debuts, not like these debuts, but like mm-hmm. cooler <laughs> debuts, like eclectic debuts in two thousand five. I don't remember. Um, so I don't know. That's a great question. I yeah. Think. I can't like he was yeah he was right around there. Justin Timberlake had like his major moment in the early two thousands. Okay, number two, mm. uh, it's a good artist, Eardrum by Talib Kweli, <laughs> and I was actually he's surprised. Very cool. He is very cool, and he's I really love his music. I'm actually surprised that he was this high. He debuted at uh, number one or no, he was number one last week. I didn't think Talib Kweli was this big. I, right. Well, I know he did Black Star with Most Death. Yeah. And that was dope. And maybe that brought. But yeah, I'm I'm really pleasantly surprised by this number two. Yeah, that's great. I saw him. It is really great. No, I guess it was a few years before this. In 2004, I saw him open for the Beastie Boys. Mm, so imagine just. Taste. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, of course. Imagine just one guy on a stage at an arena at the Air Canada Center. 
That was, very, that was pretty yeah, cool. That's that is tough. Yeah. That's like a, watching a cage tiger go back and forth. That's how I feel when it's like a, a huge stage and it's like a one act person. It's like how they have to be like that commanding. Like they have to be like this, you know what I mean? Like gorgeous tiger just being like, oh, I'm so enchanted. I can't stop looking at you. You know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's tough, especially if you don't have like dancing girls and pyrotechnics and all of this like high kicks and stuff, you know, like it, that's hard. Yeah, man. That was an amazing thing. Actually. I remember watching this going like, this guy's working hard. He is on mm -hmm. a gigantic stage by himself. As a, mm -hmm. as a warm -up and the lights are probably blinding you. Oh, brutal. But wow. Yeah, wow. 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 That's cool. That's cool that you saw that. That's dope. Okay, guys. Number, <laughs> number one in oh. 2007. Are so, we allowed to guess? Of course you're allowed to guess. I will give you uh, some hints. We yeah. again, this is another reference from the article that we just wrote, read about you know people discovering music and how they do it. <laughs> I'm just gonna say it. <laughs> it's the High School Musical two soundtrack. <laughs> Why did you do that? But wait, were there actually like new songs on these, or were they like made up of like old songs? I mean, honestly, that was actually, I, I think you should have made us suffer a little bit. Oh, sorry. But that was painless. No, that was quite painless that you were just like, I'm just going to cut to the chase. It's what he said. Yeah. Oh, wait. Are, oh, it wasn't like pop songs. It's just, oh, it was just a musical, I guess. Okay. And it's just, it's actually original songs? I assume. Okay. You're reliving it. You're like, it's a soundtrack. It's like you're reliving, because it's a music. Yes, it's a For musical. Sure. So you're reliving everything. So these kids are like. You know, whatever Zach and Vanessa are doing, they're like, oh, my God, I want to. What month that. is the? Yeah, it's September, September, September. 2007. Yeah. So it's summer. It's post-summer. Right? Yeah. Everyone's got their summer glow. Yeah. Everybody's back to school buying this, this junk. Yeah. Yeah. Good time. They're like, Good time. Yeah, they're like, oh, being nostalgic. Like, oh, I miss, mm. I miss all of the dancing. <laughs> Thanks very much, guys, for doing this with me again. It was a real pleasure to have you again and talk. It's always Thank fun. Thank you. So I, I don't know why you keep asking me back. <laughs> to be honest, You're a pop culture a junkie with tons to say about music, Kavita. Why wouldn't I ask oh, you back? Thanks, man. Thanks. You're a pal. You're you're a good you're a good guy. Alright. It was fun. Bye guys, thanks. Okay, bye John. Bye.